one of the advantages of no longer being chained to the green screen is I can mess with the lighting a little bit. <laughs> Let's talk about this episode. Before I go any further, first question. How many of you like this episode? No judgment, one way or the other. I'll raise my hand. This is one of the very few episodes I remember rather distinctly and have, in fact, watched multiple times prior to you know this particular watch-through. Not counting the Season 3, Season 4 stuff, obviously, as I've mentioned before. David Livingston uh, directed this, and it shows. Sussman and Strong wrote this, and it shows. As I've said before, Sussman and Strong can do some good stuff, and you know this is a good example of that. But I also want to give special uh, shout-outs to Brian Tyler, who did the music. He also did the music over in Canamar, which wasn't bad, but this is it. Like, he did Canamar and he did this episode. And the musical style is completely different, and it shows immediately... And it's good. And it's, it, it's, it does a good job of emphasizing and accenting the scenes wonderfully. It adds to the tension, because good music could and should add to tension like that. But, uh, well, this tends to come towards the top of episodes when it comes to Star Trek. And I'd like to think that's more than just the fact that there's fan service on display here. Because there is. Tying in First Contact, tying in TNG using a fan-favorite race, the Borg. You know, all of that stuff. I'd like to think that there's more to it than just that. I don't know if that's true, but, you know, I, I would enjoy it if that were, in fact, a true statement. What do you think? Before I go into actually analyzing the episode, why do you think this one's so popular? So, <clears throat> nitpick number one. <laughs> Why did it take this long for EarthGov, excuse me, humanity, in order to find this ship and do something with it? I mean, it's just sitting there at the Arctic, right? And they've been you know, doing space exploration for decades at this point. They invented a proper warp drive a hundred years ago. What the heck took so long? All right, we're done, we're done. Moving on, moving on. Maybe they just were, they were doing that human thing. They were so desperate to fling out as far as possible that it never occurred to them to check the stuff back home. I mean, after all, they're probably, as I mentioned in a previous episode, they probably took Earth and just charted a line and said, yeah, we're going over there. And that's their exploration, is, is, is making a line on a graph. <sighs> or on a map, I suppose. <clears throat> but anyways, so of course, this is a hell of a hook, right? I mean, the episode's named Regeneration, but that can mean whatever. But what I find really fascinating about this is this, uh, there's a, uh, well, <laughs> this is a horror film, or horror episode, I suppose I should say. I want you to imagine, because this, this is a horror story, a unknown uh, advancing cybernetic force that can assimilate and consume others into itself has landed on an unsuspecting world. And there's just the two drones there, or whatever, right? But that's all they need, because that's the nature of how they operate. Like, that is the beginning of horror stories. I've seen games, and shows, and movies, which have and books, while we're on the subject, which have started with that exact same premise. So, it, I think that immediately adds to the thing, and I want to kind of build up to that point a little bit. I also really love how the arm just kind of turns on. I, I mentioned this is a horror story. The Borg... 
I've, I've, so this is the last time we're discussing the Borg, because this is the last time they'll come up in Star Trek, not counting the shows that I haven't watched yet, and indeed may never cover for this show. That's still in the air. If that's going to happen, that's happening years from now, because we got plenty of other Trek to cover in the meantime, right? Like, that's like a 2024 sort of a problem, so we're not thinking about that yet. I, I plan in advance, and not that far in advance. <clears throat> so, final discussion about the Borg. One of the things that's always privately irritated me is when people just call the Borg cybernetic zombies. And that irritates me because the int intonation and intent with, with, that, with, with which that phrase is said is almost always insulting. At least that's the way I have always heard it from people who use it in such a manner. They want to be like, oh, well, that's it. And I'm sure you've heard someone use a similar comparison, either with the Borg specifically, or with something else, maybe a character, maybe a you know, a specific archetype or a show or a game or whatever, something you liked, and you're trying to explain it to them, they're like, oh, so it's just such and such. And there's just something dismissive about that, right? This episode, however, shows that concept at its finest, better than any other episode of The Borg, in my opinion, across all of Trek, not counting the stuff I haven't watched. This really showcases how terrifying these things are and the power of a good zombie story. Because a good zombie story is, I've said this so many times, is more about how the people react to it and how they respond to it, rather than the focus being on the zombies themselves. And you'll notice, and this is, they do a good job of this as well, they're on the back foot this entire episode. They barely scrape together a victory. I'll, keep, I'll point that out in the future as well. But again... Part of the, the intriguing aspects of the horror here is not that the Borg are the overwhelming throng, which, I mean, they are, but not here. Here, there's just two of them. I find something more interesting about the zombie story where there's two zombies, and that's a major threat, than there's seven million zombies, and that's a major threat. Both work, of course. You know, both have their own things going for them. But the two zombies story is more fascinating to me personally and why that one tiny little thing, that seemingly irrelevant thing, can be such a monumental game-changer. They should be fortunate they decided not to stick around on Earth. Otherwise, well, to be perfectly frank, that would probably be game. That's probably why they didn't, because the writers were like, okay, if they just stick around on Earth, that's, that's the end, right? We can't do that, can we? Can we do that? No, we can't do that, so we, <laughs> we have to have them leave. But I mentioned this back in Best of Both Worlds Part 1, and a little bit in Q-Who, uh, and there was a couple episodes of Voyager, I never remember their names, please forgive me, because there's so many Borg episodes in Voyager, but there's a couple episodes in Voyager that nail this too. Dread. I love the dread, the overwhelming weight of inevitability. That unique and distinct tone is what I love most about the Borg. There's, it, it, it's the unstoppable force. And you know it's there, and you know it's coming. And that's important. You have to know. You have to know it's coming. This leads me to a little side thing. I've talked so many times about what I call the Hitchcockian forms. Hitchcockian? The Hitchcock forms. Sounds like a weird sentence. Of, um, of suspense, right? We know. They don't. They know. We don't. Neither of us know. Both of us knows. It's the four types, right? I've talked about this many times uh, in fiction, especially when it comes to Trek, because this comes up semi-often. This is probably the most archetypal example, the one that, you know, tends to be used the most in fiction. We know they don't. The whole intro, it takes its time, and I think this is one of the powers of the episode, it takes its time building it up. If it just jumped straight to the action, 
I don't think this episode will be quite as memorable, but it spends the first like eight or nine minutes just building up and building up as we see these people and these researchers in this frozen wasteland. And they're a little jumpy, they're a little tense, but that's just nerves, that's just jitters. They're mostly, they have no idea. They really do not have a grasp of how screwed they are. They don't. We do. And that's the power of it. We're just sitting here waiting for the gun to fire, so to speak. We're waiting for the bomb to go off, to use the classic Hitchcock example. And we're just like... Oh god, the arm turned on! This is it! No, 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 it's just... Okay. And in my opinion, while I have seen better uses of suspense than this, this is nevertheless a very good usage of suspense, and it really helps... Uh, not only build up the, the the big character thing, which will be coming later, again, power of zombie stories, what it does to the people, but it also helps helps lay that groundwork. Because the rest of the episode is basically an action episode. And it, it wouldn't work as well, in my opinion, if we didn't have this establishing moment. Now, <laughs> I do like how they're armed. I do. They've got guns. They're ready to go. In fact, uh, Reed, I think, Reader Tucker later mentions that they were heavily armed. Now, that makes sense. Unknown aliens on Earth, of course, are going to be heavily armed. Those are probably Starfleet personnel who are probably there as an aspect of a military, you know, incur or not incursion, uh, military expedition into this area. Makes sense, right? Unknown, uncertain aliens on Earth, of course, you're going to send the military. Like, that, that actually does make sense, and I'm completely with that. It just doesn't matter because they're the Borg. Uh, so, <clears throat> they don't actually show us what really happens either. That's another thing. They don't actually show the assimilation and the cons consumption of the people there. Because they don't have to. We see a Borg wake up. And then we hear a scream. And then we see them rush over. And then we see a Borg cut to the Admiral. Admiral shows up. They're gone. And they've taken the ship with them. Yeah. And again, usage of that suspense, that tension thing. So, <clears throat> allow me to say, in my opinion, what I think is really the best... There's two really big benefits to this episode. And the first is, it makes the Borg terrifying again. Partially thanks to Voyager, not exclusively thanks to Voyager, the Borg stopped being the Borg quite as much as they were. And it started being, they started being just kind of another regular recurring villain that one single Intrepid class ship kept competing against and winning somehow. And I've talked about that over on Voyager, and God willing, someday I hope to actually redo the Voyager stuff. But the point is, <laughs> I really do want to do that. I know I've talked about that before. It's I mentioned that, you know, once we're done with Enterprise and TAS, we'll think about it. That is one of the things I'm thinking about doing. But again, a few years out. Anyways, <sighs> Voyager kind of... Chopped the Borg off at the knees. It had some good Borg episodes. It did. And I will stand by that firmly. But then there's the rest of them. It would be interesting to enumerate it. See the number of bad Borg episodes versus good Borg episodes. And really kind of see what the percentages lie on, right? But anyways, having seeing the Borg in this light, I think it really added to the general enjoyment. Because it's like... Anybody who's a comic book fan knows this cycle. Hey, there's this character you like, and they're awesome. Oh, but they're crap, and they're they're getting curb stomped by everyone, and they're pathetic and terrible and awful, and they just kind of reduce themselves to being a D-list character, and they're just kind of shuffled off to the side. And then some time passes, 
Then a new writer shows up and says, I want to write for that character. And they bring them up and they make them awesome again. And they make them, you know, terrifying if they're a villain or engaging if they're a hero or whatever. They take it and they, they do something creative with it. And all of a sudden it's like, yeah, they're awesome again. That right there, that's exactly what this episode does to the Borg. Which is ironic because it's the first slash last Borg episode that we're ever going to be covering. And it does form a nice little loop, doesn't it? But I'll get to that in a minute. <clears throat> so, Enterprise is close enough to intercept. Within six light years, they specifically state. I'm going to mention this during the Trek rewrite thing, but once again, I feel like this this is an episode that should have been in season one in the home sector. It would make a lot more sense if they were the only ship, not only in range, but far more importantly, the only ship that could catch the transport in time, because Warp 5 Vessel. I think that makes a lot more sense and would explain why, you know, they're able to intercept within a very short period of time a ship that basically just left Earth. Think about that for a moment. Like, Warp 5 is fast, right? It's not that fast. We could sit down and do the math, and I'm not going to do it right now. You can do it if you want to. But, you know, 30 light years is, is still, that's a decent chunk of time with when, when traveling a Warp 5. They're within six light years of where the ship is after having just left warp at Earth at probably an escalating speed up to warp, and I wrote this down, uh, three, oh, I didn't write that down, warp three something. So, we're pretty close to Earth is what I'm trying to say in this episode. And that's fine. That works out. Because, again, home sector. At this point, I think I can officially say that sector two, sector two, wow, season two is the sector one season. I don't think it was intended to be. It just kind of keeps coming up for some reason. So for season one, they went as far out as they could. And then in season two, they came back. Actually makes a degree of sense. Anyways. <clears throat> so, warp three. Okay, that's terrifying. And they, they immediately point out that that ship shouldn't be able to go warp three. It should only be able to go, you know, warp uh, one point something. So that's that's the first sign. Okay. You know what? Hey, where's my clicker? I got one right here. So, warp warp three. Now, <clears throat> as they're going through this, uh, they start checking over in the scans that they've received, and they realize, well, hang on a second. Those those guys they they they, they were a fully armed uh, team, right? How could they take down a fully armed military team? The next thing they do is they do scans of the ship, and they find out that the ship itself didn't actually have weapons. Oh, but it does now. <laughs> this then leads to probably the other best part about this episode. I mean, it, it's some fan service, but good fan service is good fan service, right? So that's not it. No, the first part I already told you about, making the Borg terrifying. The second part... We have never really seen the Borg weaker than this. I'm not counting Iborg, because that's not the Borg. That's Hugh. That's Hugh's story. And I'm not counting Descent for reasons that I shouldn't have to go into. But this is, in my opinion, the weakest we ever see the Borg operating. Because they, they, this is the Borg. This isn't a few drones that have distanced themselves. This isn't the, the roaming horde that's under lore. This is just the Borg, the, the, what's left of this collective from the future, which is operating under their own auspices, trying to do what they can to reconnect with the collective and continue their operations, right? Just in the past. This is the Borg, and they're pathetic by the Borg standards. They have a few drones which have limited, well, 
it is presumed, this is something that many fans have tossed around for many years, it is presumed that they have limited uh, ability to adapt, limited nanomachine production. We do know that Seven, you know, similar timeline in the future, she could only generate so many nanoprobes at a time, and she would actually, in some episodes, she would drain her reserves, and so she would have to work on getting some more, right? Like, that came up several times. So they're limited in production and or reserves, right? And they've got one dinky little transport, which they are very slowly upgrading to be barely capable of taking on a cruiser of a similar type in this era. And that's how pathetic and terrible they are. And they're still the most terrifying thing we see in this show, at least to date. That's the second power. When you are barely succeeding, this is a narrative power. When you are barely succeeding and you're just struggling and striving and this terrifying foe is crushing you at every turn and you just barely win this encounter and then you find out that they were hobbled and crippled and disabled and barely operatable that's terrifying anywho <clears throat> so then flocks <laughs> uh this is uh hmm. actually before we talk about flocks let's talk about cochran naturally cochran had to share the story they kind of gloss over this but i could actually picture this happening oh yes there was these Things, they, they were Cybermen from the future. I, I don't know what they were exactly. They tried not to share too much too many details with me, but some other people also from the future came to stop them. And everyone's like, oh yeah, sure. Sure, Zephram, whatever. And I could just imagine Zephram being like, yeah, yeah, no, just, just another tale, right? And then taking a swig and then just kind of looking off from the distance because no one's going to believe him. But, of course, it becomes part of public record because this, this is humanity. That's what they do. And, I mean, we do. I'm totally, totally human, guys. Don't read into that. Um, <clears throat> and then he just kind of recants it, but it's part of public record. And it does actually make sense that Archer, who is a Zephram Cochran fanboy because of his dad, right, is able to, is the kind of person who would have read that little story and lodged it away somewhere for trivia, and so been able to pull out and be like, huh, and share that in the episode. And I point all this out because this makes sense. One of the biggest things I push for in fiction is that it makes sense. I know that's kind of strange and it's not a universal thing. Some people have different objectives when it comes to fiction, what it is they want out of it. Maybe they want it to make them feel. Maybe they want it to engage them in an intellectual exercise. Maybe they want it to examine a what-if scenario or be used as an allegorical thing, you know, try to examine real life through the lens of fiction. Everyone has their own objectives. It's one of the reasons why so many of us love Star Trek, and yet disagree on everything about it. My objective, my biggest objective, is always that it makes sense. And that's one of the biggest reasons why this episode works for me. Not the presence of the boar. Not the horror and terror thing, although that is awesome. Not the fan service, although that's awesome too. It's the fact that this episode actually makes surprisingly good sense. And that's impressive, considering you've got Borg in Enterprise. But a lot of effort and work was done to make this line up. There really is only one niggle for me here, and that niggle is Q-Who. Data, who has a ridiculous database and ability to access it on the, on the fly, as shown many, many times, should have been able to look at that and say, oh, yes, we've had uh, in in information and scattered reports and encounters of these people, but like, and, and, and that's kind of it. One line of dialogue would smooth this over for me. Obviously, they can't do that because that was season two TNG, and this is like nine years later or whatever, right? But other than that, this lines up relatively neatly. 
it will take about 200 years for the message to get home. In fact, it'll take about 213 if you want to count. And that that leads to why the Borg have a degree of interest in the situation and lead into the events of the Neutral Zone, which then lead into the events of Q Who. It would also partially explain why Q was insistent on accelerating things. Because, and he was right, uh, it is entirely likely that he believed that humanity was simply not prepared for the Borg, and the Borg were coming. Something that was established even then with Neutral Zone, but in hindsight is absolutely established with this episode. So knowing humanity was coming, or <laughs> knowing the Borg, oh, humanity's coming, no! Knowing the Borg are coming, and knowing that humanity's not ready for it, and given Q, RQ's overall predilection for helping in a way that amuses him, it lines up pretty neatly with, with various threads across TNG, across Voyager, across the movie, and across Enterprise. Again, that only, that only niggle is when they encounter them in Q, who they've never even heard of these people. So, huh? Now, having said all that, it is amusing to me that this lines up neat, neater, more neatly, with Voyager than it does with, with TNG. Why? The Hansons. It is exceptionally easy to presume that the reason the Hansons have even heard of the Borg and were able to look into this and find out these distant rumors and have the barebone surface level of information about what the Borg are and how they operate because of events that were jotted down and notated in this episode. If nothing else, even if Starfleet did Starfleet's thing and Section 31 clamped down on reports here, you can't tell me Phlox isn't going to share this one far and wide, right? Interesting to think about, and I am, of course, curious of your guys' thoughts and how many of you disagree with me. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so this is the Borg of the Week, as Cochran has his story. Phlox, right, I was just talking about Phlox. He gets a little bit of a into the local collective, which, of course, takes it, uh, takes it up to the next level and leads us to the subspace message I messaged earlier. But I'm getting ahead of myself, because the next thing that happens is, oh, I don't think they're really a threat. And then they break out effortlessly, despite being under armed guard, I feel like adding. I'm not going to do another click for that one. What I find most amusing about this is Flux is like, ah, oh, they're not really a threat. Then they're a threat. But what I like about this is Flox's attitude changes immediately. You see just a little bit of that military physician coming out there. Because he takes this situation with deadly seriousness from the moment he's injected onward. We could argue that it might or might, but not because of selfish reasons, because he is now personally involved. But I personally like to think that some of that competency kicked in, and he's like, oh, okay. And now he understands a little bit better the foe he's facing, and knows how screwed they are, so he's going to start taking this seriously. By the way, that's another reason I like this episode. We see competency from basically all of the crew. And I know that sounds so strange to comment on, and it wasn't until I wrote that down in my notes right here, it was just a word, competency, that I realized how much I was missing competency in Enterprise. Don't mistake me. I don't need every episode to have the super highest, greatest tier of mega Starfleet dudes and dudettes like we have in TNG, for example. It's one of the biggest flaws of TNG right there, in my opinion, other than the lack of continuity thing. But it would be nice to have some competency and one of the problems with Enterprise is that they tend to so regularly be incompetent that it just kind of becomes the norm. And it's almost always in service of the script, right? Now, I have enjoyed this run-through of Enterprise to date, but going back through with analysis mode has really reminded me of why I've never actually sat down and rewatched season one and two, because there's gems here, but that skip list is growing, you know what I mean? 
okay, we're almost done with season two. Then we'll see how season three fares. That'll be interesting. Uh, so, <clears throat> flocks start taking this seriously. And they start examining... Um, uh, they, so what happens is they, they try take a shot. And it's like, okay, we need to, we need to take a warning shot, uh, which was actually arguably the worst thing he could do, but he didn't know that, of course. So it's not incompetency, it's just, you know, it's typical operating procedures. That does nothing. Full shot does nothing. So their phasers do nothing. Then, <laughs> we find out that the transport has accelerated to warp 4.8. And there's even this little tidbit. They they understate it. That's what I love most. They don't they don't pause and just have focus the camera on. Oh my god! At every little tidbit, it's just the hits start coming, and the crew just kind of starts reeling a little bit each with each one. Like, ugh, ugh, what? They they doubled their speed in an hour. Okay, <laughs> all right. Let's let's just move on with that, shall we? So then. Then there's this nice little bit, and I mentioned competency. This is actually where I wrote down competency in my notes right here. Because what happens next is, you know, they're, they start they start changing part of the Enterprise, and magic nanoprobe stuff happens. Let's just skip over that for a moment. They start changing Enterprise around. And, it, by the way, if you're wondering, I, I don't like to criticize without critiquing. I just wouldn't have shown it on camera. Instead of, and then it's Borg stuff, I'll just have her go, and see some electricity, and then cut away to something else and then cut back and now it's Borgified, right? <clears throat> Anyways. So, <laughs> they start Borgifying and they, there's like, you know, we need to get them off the thing. It's, it's isolated on this deck and Archer hesitates for a second. He's just... And you could see that hesitation. This is, I believe, the very beginning of the Archer character arc. Right here, season two, episode 23, we have just started Archer's character arc. And I'm not actually joking or being facetious about that. Bear with me here. So he hesitates. Reed gets the hell out of Dodge. Nice little tidbit. Reed closes the thing, and before he even goes two rungs further down, pulls out his comment and says, I'm out. Immediate notification. I know that's such a minor tidbit, but one of the things that irritates me most about Trek, especially Voyager, is how they're in an emergency situation where seconds count, right? Where seconds count, and, and they take forever to do things for some reason. In this case, it's the exact opposite. Eh, eh, we're, we're clear. Go. <laughs> you know, it, it's just bam, because this is an emergency situation, and they treat it as such. Again, everyone starts to treat this very seriously. Maybe we just... Need to have the Borg on the show full-time. I don't know. No, it would get old. It would get old. You don't want to overuse this particular thing. So they vent it, right? And he is bothered by it. Archer is bothered by what happens here. And he because he's just vented the two. Tarkalians, by the way, I didn't even mention this. Sorry, there's, there's a bunch of references. This is the first time we have ever seen Tarkalians on camera. We've heard about them several times. They're mentioned in DS9. Also, there's a quick reference to the Binars, which means, at the very least, the Nobulans have already encountered the Binars, which also means that the Binars are probably one of the, the home sector species, so we're just building that list up there. Anyways. So, <clears throat> Archer, uh, so we have two quick character scenes, which is good. Pacing, right? We need to pull the tempo down a little bit. Phlox and Hoshi have actually a, a pretty decent scene, and... Well, frankly, I think we should have more decent Hoshi scenes throughout the show, but I've already said that 7,000 times, so moving on. It is a decent scene. Hoshi is there and armed. 
Flux is even mildly alert, alarmed by it. But it's funny because intellectually he understands, but you can tell emotionally he's bothered by it. Billingsley does a really good job of Flux. I'm not sure I ever appreciated his acting as well as I did until this particular watch throw. So Flux is bothered by it, but understands it and basically insists that she leaves because, well, you know, this is bad. And she's like, well, I got you some food. And he's like, no, no, metabolism. And he's right. Metabolism will hurt the situation. So he, he needs to basically starve himself right now. So that's cute. That's a fun thought. Hey, uh, you're slowly dying or worse, but don't worry. You get to starve while you're doing it. Uh, then Archer is having a moment with T'Pol. And T'Pol is once again showing that she's the better commander here. And here's how that arc comes in. Archer's like, no, we've got to save them. He's already bothered by the two people he lost. They were just Tarkalians, but obviously it bugs him. And it should. It's worth noting. But it bugs him so much that now he's willing to go further than he otherwise would to salvage the situation, to make sure no, he doesn't lose anybody else. This is then immediately followed by him going down to Phlox's, and Phlox is like, hey, so this might not work. I might not be able to come back. Archer, of course, is just... You can see, and again, credit to Bacula, you can see how much that hits him. Okay, so I've just lost uh, those two, and now I'm going to lose my chief doctor. Maybe that's that's great. That's great. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to lose any more. You're not going to take any more from me. Okay. I'm not. No. And um, there's a bit of almost desperation in the way he his expression is. He does. It's not really there in his tone. It's nice and understated, which is. Beautiful. This then leads to the big sticking point, the one thing that everyone complains about in this episode. Uh, the fact that, you know, Phlox cures assimilation, right? No, it doesn't. Now, I'm going to go ahead and be honest. I do think that this is something that didn't necessarily need to be in the episode. And I would rewrite this if I was doing this. But you know how I'd rewrite this, because if you've been, if you're watching, uh, what is this? This is 33 minutes into this video. If you've been watching this far into this video, it means you probably have watched my stuff before, so you probably have a feel for my writing style. So how many of you can guess what I would do here? Phlox, and in the Trek rewrite, we will be doing something similar to this, although I'm going to workshop it with uh, Jesse and Reloaded before that. But anyways, Phlox, uh, <laughs> he has unique physiology, has the mind power and asset and resources and time to process and deal with this, so he's not really under the gun. And he figures out that he might be able to basically destroy his body with a massive radiation bathing, which might kill him and maybe wipe out all the nanoprobes within him. And that's only if you catch it relatively early in the assimilation, and it has to be in the field assimilation. With all those asterisks attached, this doesn't really bother me all that much. Not, not nearly as much as, you know, if he just was like, oh, I'm just going to cure assimilation. Now... <clears throat> Once again, it's about that making sense thing. It's about earning it. That's another thing, too. You have to earn it. But I have to admit, I still don't actually like this tidbit. I just, it doesn't bother me as much as it bothers other people. I, I absolutely understand why it would bother people. It is worth noting, though, that just to confirm what most of you have probably already thought and or typed, I would have Phlox die here. I would have him go in and the radiation bathes him and it gets rid of the nanoprobes and kills him. Maybe have like it, it's it's destroyed his his cell his cells to the point where he effectively can't recover. So he's not gonna he's not immediately dead, but he is on death's door, 
maybe have a denouement episode possibly instead of bounty which i don't remember particularly positively where he you know it's the it's the goodbye to flocks episode and he decides he's going to go back with his family and live the rest of his days there you know that kind of a thing that's probably the direction i would go with that in the trek rewrite i intend to push for exactly that except well it won't be flocks and this is how flocks will join the show anyways so this then leads to where the episode, where the action stuff really comes in. Um, they've done all this prep work. You know, Reed has upped the damage on the phasers, basically doubled the damage of the phasers to be able to do some kind of damage to the Borg armor, barely. <laughs> the Tucker's looking at the circuitry, and they've got the, the bombs ready to go, and they've got the, the they've analyzed the enemy ship. We're ready to go. We come up, we, we approach the enemy ship, and the enemy ship sets off a trap and immediately disables the Enterprise to the point of almost being helpless. Once again, I remind you that this is the Borg at their weakest. And they just kind of walk over Enterprise. It is actually interesting to note, and this is probably the other major flaw of the episode, the Borg still have all of the Borg weaknesses. Their insistence on not caring unless they have a reason to care. In other words, they don't prep. They, it's more like they react, right? You know, post rather than pre kind of a thing. So they don't care that, you know, uh, Reed and Archer are on, are on board the ship. And they are too, entirely too slow in how they advance and operate. You know, the usual Borg weaknesses. They, they, even the tubule thing is still there, right? But um, it still is interesting that they still barely survive the situation despite those weaknesses, which really says a lot, I think, and part of why I'm okay with all those. Big action sequence. They adapt. Takes them a little while to adapt. The, um, the What's interesting here is you notice the Borg are using tactics. Actual tactics, which is unusual for the Borg. This is something I covered much more extensively over on the Voyager stuff, because Voyager was the first time the Borg really started considering tactics, and I postulated several times that one of the ways that you could develop the Borg as a narrative tool is to have them adapt in terms of mentality, not just in terms of technology. And thus the Borg could learn to start using tactics, using diplomacy, rather than just walking up and crushing things in the situations where they couldn't. It is interesting to note that the Borg were capable of tactics when they had to. They just reverted to standard default procedures when they didn't. So this actually still lines up and makes sense for me. They resort to tactics here because they have to. They are on the back leg. They are weak and have very few resources and have no additional drones and are a bagrillion years from home. Also, a little... You know, well, I'll talk about that in a second. So... <clears throat> um, uh, they call over. They don't say, we are the Borg. That doesn't bother me. They didn't always say that. Um, there's this nice little tidbit where they send two drones after them. The two drones die. And they immediately send four. Afterwards, they send six. <laughs> Escalation. And then there's the part of the episode I hate the most, because hull plating is at 23%. Urgh, just, just make them shields! Um, <clears throat> if you're going to do it, just make them shields. But they barely make it out. And they, it's funny, they do this whole thing. They, they, they disable the Borg stuff on their, their ship, somehow. And they blow up the, the whatever node, I forget what it's off the top of my head, the node on the other ship. And it's like, okay. And there's even this moment where they take this moment to relax and be like, okay, now we can think about what to do. And this is when Reed is like, hey, they're powering back up. And they're arming weapons. I do like how Archer is immediately like, no, 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 fire everything, fire everything, right now. Again, 
Archer's character arc has begun because it still bothers him that he just had to destroy all those people. There's no one left on board that ship that could use our help. The episode ends with the message about the subspace thing. I point this out, though, because the signal, again, as I already mentioned, kind of lines up with the feelings neatly. But what's most interesting about it is it looks like the Borg were once again using tactics because they didn't send the signal as a last-ditch thing. They were sending that signal out over and over and over. Remember, Phlox was hearing that number repeated incessantly in his head. It's one of the reasons he was able to remember it to recite for them. And they were doing that back when Phlox still was becoming part of the Collective, which is well before the actual battle really started and before the ship was actually in danger of being destroyed. In short, the Borg had been just blasting that information at the Delta Quadrant probably for the last few hours. And again, that makes sense. They are the Borg. Resistance was futile. 